0: Brothers and sisters, I ask that you would turn with me in your Bibles uh, to our text this morning, which comes from uh, Paul's letter to the Galatians. And we will be looking at chapter 1 this morning in verses 1 to 5. So Galatians chapter 1 and verses 1 to 5. Galatians chapter 1 verses 1 to 5, please brothers and sisters and hear with me the reading of God's Word. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave Himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Thus far is a reading of God's Word. Today, brothers and sisters, we we begin a new study, don't we? A new study here in the letter of Paul to the Galatians. And as we begin our study, it might be appropriate to ask the question, who are the Galatians? And who are the, the churches of Galatia that Paul is writing to? And there are really uh, two views as to who these Galatians could be. Uh, the first view uh, might be called the, the Northern Galatian theory. And the other view, yes, you've guessed it, is the Southern Galatian theory. Now, the the northern Galatian theory argues that those who Paul is writing to are are ethnic Galatians, right? Ethnically Galatian. Now, Galatia, uh, that name comes from the Gauls, uh, who migrated to northern Asia Minor in the third century BC, but that nor- that um, inevitably or eventually became a Roman province in 25 B.C. And so, one of the arguments for the Northern Galatian theory is this, that those in what we consider Southern Galatia or or Southern Asia Minor were not ethnically Galatians. And so if Paul's writing to the Galatians, then they say he must be writing to those who are ethnically Galatian. He must be writing to, to churches that exist in Northern Asia Minor. Now, They are correct in the sense that those who would be considered Galatian in in southern Asia Minor were not ethnically Galatian. Right? They came from many different ethnic backgrounds. However, uh, Rome turned Asia Minor into one large province. And it was the entirety of that province, both northern Asia Minor and southern Asia Minor, that came to be known as Galatia. And so it was not uncommon uh, to speak of of the entirety of the province as Galatia. And so it was not unheard of to call the the churches in southern Asia Minor Galatians. And in fact, one proponent of the southern Galatian theory provides to us, I think, a helpful modern example of why we also ought to see it that way as well. We ought to take the, the southern Galatian theory view. This is what he says. Consider the way the Russians incorporated Georgians, Lithuanians, Ukrainians, and other ethnic groups into the former Soviet Union. Although these groups retained their ethnic identities, they were sometimes referred to as Russians. And so I think we need to see that in a a similar way here. That those that Paul is writing to are not ethnically Galatian. But at the same time, they could be called Galatians as they lived in that province, the entire province of Galatia. And this would have been common and understood by those living in those days and in that time. In fact, it was the southern Galatian theory that is the predominant view amongst scholars. Why is that? Well, primarily for the fact that we have recorded for us in Scripture and Paul's first missionary journey in Acts 13 and 14, him planting churches in southern Asia Minor. And we don't have any evidence of him planting churches in, in northern Asia Minor. And so when we ask the question, uh, who are the churches of Galatia that Paul is writing to, or who are the Galatians, we might answer Pisidia, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. Right? All churches that Paul planted Himself in Southern Asia Minor or Southern Galatia, and if this is the case, then the letter of the Galatians to the Galatians is the first letter that Paul ever wrote, and he would have wrote it uh, towards the end of, of of the 40s, maybe 46, 47, 48 A.D. Now, whether Paul is writing to the northern churches or southern churches, at the end of the day, though, doesn't make any. It doesn't matter. It doesn't make any difference. Um, it's only helpful if we take the Southern Galatian theory view because I think it answers more questions that we might have. Right? It, it answers the question for us like, why does Paul write to them in this manner? Right? If we look at Paul's 13 letters that he wrote, oftentimes he, he begins with that customary ancient greeting of, of presenting his, his name right to the people and greeting them in that manner. But oftentimes what do we see right after that? There's usually a long thanksgiving or a long prayer to God thanking God for for what He has been doing in those churches. But we don't see that here today. We see that in the book of Romans. We see that in 1 Corinthians and Philippians and Colossians to name a few. But we don't see that here. But if He's writing though to those churches, the churches that He's labored over, the churches that He loves so dearly, the churches that he was just with not too long ago, then it makes sense that after just a very quick introduction, verses 1 to 5, that he skips over that and goes right into a rebuke in verse 6. right, Saying, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different Gospel. I mean, think about it for a second, brothers and sisters. Think about those of you who have children. If you've seen someone physically assaulting your child, as a parent, what would you do? You'd act, wouldn't you? And you would act differently than you normally would if you saw your child and everything was okay. And so if we want to know why does Paul's introduction here in the beginning of the letter to the Galatians change, why is it not like all the others, this, is, I think, is, a, is an answer to that. right? Because he, he's hearing that those whom he loves... That those that he has been laboring after are now being influenced by false teachers who are tampering with their souls. And so as a, a father of sorts to these churches, he, he sees his children under spiritual attack. Right, These false teachers are introducing destructive doctrines. right, Destructive heresies. And so Paul doesn't have time for all of the pleasantries. He doesn't have time for all of those other things. And he dives right in to telling them what the issue is. And he has really one purpose throughout this whole letter. And the purpose of this letter is to remind them of the Gospel. Right? Remind them of the Gospel that he proclaimed to them. Remind them of, of the impact and significance that the Gospel ought to have in their lives. And we see this from the very opening verse on. We see it in the very way that Paul introduces himself as an Apostle. Because the way that he speaks of his apostleship is different here than in ways that he speaks about it in other letters. And so this is going to be the first point that we want to consider as we look at Paul's defense of the true gospel. And so our first point will be called the establishment of Paul's apostolic credentials. Right? The, the establishment of Paul's apostolic credentials. Now, we might ask the question, what does Paul's apostolic credentials have to do with the Gospel? What do Paul's credentials matter when it comes to the Gospel? Well, we'll see, brothers and sisters, it matters greatly because these false teachers are Judaizers. That being professing Jewish Christians who believe in Christ and yet have not given up their, their Jewish customs but also are insisting that other people follow along and go along with those Jewish customs as well. And it's these folks who are questioning the credentials of Paul. And they're doing that in particular here to the the churches of Galatia. They're saying, well, maybe Paul was a a leader in the church of Antioch. It's there in Acts 13 that the the saints in Antioch, that, that hands were laid on him there. And so perhaps they're saying, well, he has authority over that church, but not over you guys. He's no apostle. Perhaps they're also questioning his apostleship because what's a qualification of being an apostle? In Acts chapter 1 verse 22, he had to be an eyewitness to the resurrection of Christ. And so perhaps they're saying, well, well, that doesn't define Paul, so Paul can't be a true apostle. But also we need to see that, that by their teaching, right, they're denying that Paul is bringing to them the true message of the Gospel as well. Right? Their, their teaching is in contradiction to what Paul is teaching. They're saying, if if, to, if you're going to be a part of God's covenant people, if you're going to receive God's covenant blessings, then you must submit yourself to these Jewish customs or these Jewish rites, in particular, into circumcision. So we see that, that Paul's defense then of his credentials is very necessary. don't view it as Paul here kind of defending himself because their attack on him is a hit to his ego. No, what we need to see is that to attack Paul's credentials is actually to attack the Gospel. This is why Paul has to defend himself. Not for the sake of himself, but he is defending himself and his credentials for the sake of the Gospel that he proclaimed to them. He is defending himself for the sake of the saints who, who heard and who received that Gospel. We need to understand, brothers, that there and sisters that there are there there are two different sides, aren't there? Right, teaching two different things, but only one can be true. This is why Paul needs to defend his credentials. And remember what that word apostle means. That word apostle means a messenger. That word apostle means delegate, uh, someone who is commissioned by another to come and to represent them. And so if this is what Paul is, if he is a a messenger of God, then what he's saying is the the message I declare to you is one that needs to be believed and received and, and trusted in as the very words of God that I speak to you. For I represent God as I preach this word. But it also implies what? That the Judaizer's message is false. That they are lies, for it contradicts the true message that Paul brings. But this, brothers and sisters, is why then Paul says that his apostleship is not from men or through men. That's why he says that. Because he's trying to tell them, my apostleship is not of human origin. Right? That's why he uses those, those two prepositions to emphasize that fact. Right? From or through. He's saying this is, this is not of human agency. Right? Nobody human... Made me an apostle. Right? That's what he's saying here. Isn't that different though from the office of elders today, right? Ministers today. Uh, yes, ministers are ultimately appointed by God, but it is through human agency that they take the call, as the church right calls them externally, as they are elected and ordained to office. Right? It comes through human agency. Right? That's what happens for kind of the ordinary office of the of the pastor elder today. But that's not the case with the extraordinary office of the apostle. Right? These were men from God, directly called by God, immediately given the call to the office. And so they didn't need any human recognition of it. Uh, they didn't need any vote. They didn't need the opinion of, of men or a man. To place them in that office, but rather God Himself called him and put him in that office. And doesn't Scripture record that for us as well? Think about Acts chapter nine. Acts chapter nine, where we are told of, of uh, Paul's Damascus Road conversion experience. Right? It is there that, that Christ Himself comes and speaks to Paul, and He sets him apart to be a minister of the gospel. Now remember, what are the requirements of being an apostle? Not only do you need the direct call from God, which we see in Acts 9, Paul receives, but you also have to be someone who is a witness to the resurrection of Christ. In that Damascus Road experience, brothers and sisters, that's exactly what Paul becomes. An eyewitness to the resurrection of Christ. And he sees Christ in his resurrection glory. And by definition, right? Paul then is a, is a true apostle. But see then how Paul links Christ with the Father in his calling. He uses one preposition for them both. Right, his calling to apostolic office is not only not from men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. You see what he's doing there. How he's contrasting men with God. And he links Christ with the Father. He's contrasting men with God. Yes, Jesus was a man. But He also was truly God. He was the God-man. God incarnate. And so Paul is saying it was God Himself who is the only reason that Paul has taken the office of an apostle. But Paul doesn't stop there, does he? In in demonstrating the, the force that this letter ought to have on all of the churches of Galatia. Because he adds something to the letter, doesn't he? Look at verse 2. And all the brothers who are with me. Right? He's, he's writing this letter saying that this is true. Not only is, is God given me this message and I believe it is true, but all of the saints who are with me likewise believe it to be true as well. And so we need to see that what Paul delivers is not his own. These are no private interpretations that that Paul is delivering. But this is the faith once and for all delivered to the saints that he has proclaimed to them and that he is now reminding them of. But also let this then be a reminder to us that that being a lone Christian is a very dangerous thing. Uh, There are many who think that they can sit in their homes apart from the church, and apart from God's people, with Bible in hand, and come up with their right interpretation themselves that's dangerous that's a dangerous way to think that's how heresy happens right that's how heresy arises that's how that's how schism happens that's how you get cults right we need to be a part of the church we ought to believe right the doctrines that the church as a whole has believed throughout history for hasn't the Holy Spirit been with the church throughout all of history, leading her into right doctrine and right interpretation? And so let us see, even that interpretation is a collective effort, brothers and sisters. That interpretation is a, is a joint act of the church. It's not a private one. And that's important for Christians to understand. I think that's lacking right, in the understanding of many Christians today. So after establishing then his credentials and establishing the fact that all of the brothers are in agreement with Him who are with Him, He also now moves to remind them of the blessings that they receive through Christ in the Gospel as He, the Apostle, preached that message to them. And so look with me, please, at verses 2b and 3. Verses 2b and verse 3. To the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Here we see Paul reminding the churches of Galatia of what is theirs. He's reminding them of what is theirs. But let us also see this, that it is not a wish. It's not something that he's wishing for them. But this is a declaration of what God promises to communicate to those who belong to Him through faith in His Son. And notice that Paul declares that this blessing of grace and peace comes from who? God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Once again, right, reflecting his own belief in the equality of the Godhead. right, Father and Son. But also, brothers and sisters, what he's saying here is that ultimately the communication of that blessing of grace and peace is not man to man, but it comes from God to man. Right, Paul has no ability to, to grant grace and peace to anybody. And even at the end of the service, I pronounce a, a, a blessing upon the church, right? It's called the, the benediction. But I have no power to do anything. I simply am declaring to you what God says He gives to His people and what He com- continues to communicate to His people throughout all of history. Right, and that, and that which He speaks to is, is a message of grace. And a message of peace. Now, I want us to, to notice the order of that. It is grace first, then peace. You will never have peace, brothers and sisters, unless you first have God's grace. Right? That's why this world is without peace. I mean, all of the religions of the world outside of Christianity teach some forms of, of, of a work-based merit. Any time you include the the works of man in their own salvation, they will never be at peace because you're never quite sure if you've done enough. Never quite sure that you've done enough. Also, they can have no peace because they do not have any grace. Because the only conduit who conveys the grace of God to sinners is Christ. And so if you want grace, right? if you want peace, then you need Christ. This is why Christ and those who belong to Christ are the only ones who receive the peace of God. Because grace is the cause of everything, brothers and sisters, that is good in your life and mine. Right? Grace is the cause of it. In Romans chapter eleven, verse five, we are told that you have been chosen by grace. In Ephesians chapter two, verse eight and nine, your salvation and your faith are all of grace. In Romans chapter 3 verse 24, your justification is of grace. In Romans chapter 6 verse 23, eternal life is of grace. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10, even your good works you do are all of grace. I mean, think about, for those of you who attend to the evening service, as we study the book of Ecclesiastes, if one thing is made clear by Solomon, that's Even if you're rich, even if you have all the, the wealth and possessions of the world, even your ability to enjoy those things is all of God's grace. And so he's telling the, the, the saints here that it is all of grace. Your standing before God is, is all of grace. Everything that you have and that you are is all of grace. And so although this is a benediction, it in some way also is a rebuke, isn't it? It's a rebuke to them. He's saying, don't for one second think that you can earn anything by your efforts and by your own merits. It's all of grace. And it's this grace which is a gift that is the reason that you then have peace as well. If you remember in John chapter 14, verse 27, Jesus says to His disciples, My peace I leave you, My peace I give you. Not as the world gives it. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let it be afraid. And that peace, we ought to think of really in, in two ways. The first way we ought to think about this peace is the peace that we have with God. Right? That peace that we have been given with God, who is the God of peace, that was brought about by the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ, through the shedding of His blood. You see, brothers and sisters, you cannot have peace with someone that you are at war with. And what does Paul say in Romans chapter 3 verse 17? About the human plight, the human condition. He says of all people, Jew and Gentile alike, they have not known the way of peace. That's what he says. But by grace, Jesus Christ right, brought about that reconciliation, didn't He? Right, taking away the enmity between God and man so we might draw near to God, that we might have peace with God. That peace, knowing that there is no longer any condemnation right, for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so that kind of peace is what? It's a, it's an internal peace. It's a peace of conscience. Right? It's a peace of an undisturbed mind, knowing that I am in right standing with God. When I wake up, I'm in right standing with God. When I go to sleep, I'm in right standing with God. It's a peace that we are members of His family, that He is taking care of us as His sons and daughters, that He is looking over us That He will never forsake us or cast us away. It's a peace that gives relief to distressed minds and worried hearts. It's a peace about what we will be in the future as well. As He reveals to us what? That He has also established an eternal and everlasting kingdom of peace that belongs to you and I if we are in Christ. Secondly though, out of God's grace, not only do we have peace with God, but we likewise have peace with God's creatures, don't we? Right? If God is the God of peace, and Jesus is the Prince of Peace, doesn't it make sense that we would be a, a people characterized by peace ourselves? I mean, think about what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 3. He tells believers, we are to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. In Colossians chapter 3 verse 15, Paul says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Jesus says in Mark chapter 9, verse 50, be at peace with one another. As you sit here today, can we say that of ourselves? Can we say that we are at peace with one another here as we sit here in this church today? We ought to be able to say that, brothers and sisters. On the Sermon on the Mount, what does Jesus say? Blessed are the peacemakers. Right? We ought to be peacemakers within the church. The person at peace is not the one who's always trying to stir up discord because of every little slight that is done to them. Right? This peace is a, a fruit of the Spirit. And so the person with this peace is, is willing to overlook slights done to them so as to not disturb the peace. That's how much they love peace. They want to be in in harmony with, with all people. But not only God's people, brothers and sisters. Even the outside world. Be at peace even with our enemies as well. Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 12 and verse 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. With all people. We are to be pursuing peace. We are to be doing everything in our power to promote peace. Sometimes some Christians get a kick out of being antagonistic towards the world. Fighting with the world. Quarreling with the world. Let us see, brothers and sisters, that in no way promotes peace. We ought not to desire to quarrel and fight and be angry. Now, whenever you say things like that, you must qualify it so that people don't take your words out of context and twist them. But it ought to be obvious to you that when we say that, that we are to, to be at peace with, with even the outside world. When Paul says that we are to seek peace with all men, that it's never to be through sacrificing a life of holiness or through the sacrifice of the Gospel. Right? But what Paul means when he says that we are to live at peace with all people is that if there isn't peace, it's not because of us. It's not because we haven't pursued it. But rather it's because the world is hostile towards God and the world is hostile towards His people. That's the reason that the peace is missing. So you need to understand, brothers and sisters, that discord and dissension right, comes out of an evil and wicked heart. The person who desires discord and disunity and dissension are those who have envy in their heart. Those who have bitterness. Those who demonstrate malice and vengefulness. It's really a murderous heart that they have. And so, brothers and sisters, we ought not to have that type of heart because if you live in discord with people here on earth, you ought to be scared. Because it means that God is living in discord with you. Because you reject the God of peace. You want nothing to do with, with peace with God nor peace with man. Right? These people have no place in the kingdom of God. It not that what the Judaizers demonstrate? That they have no place in the kingdom of God. But that their share is the lake of fire. That's what they show as they're sowing division and discord in the church. That they're not members of God's gracious kingdom. These false teachers are attacking grace and they are attacking the peace of the Gospel, demonstrating that God does not dwell with them. For when God dwells with His people, He grants to them peace. All that these Judaizers are doing are living for turmoil. So Paul writes to remind the churches of what is theirs. Not because of what is in them, but because of what has been done for them. Right, through the gospel, but he's also then reminding them of the gospel blessings of, of grace and peace and how it ought to be reflected in our lives. Right, these blessings, brothers and sisters, of grace and peace are not just theory. Right, they're not just theory. They ought to transform the sinner. Right, these aren't just ideas that ought to float around in our minds or just nice words we say to each other. Grace and peace. But rather, brothers and sisters, they are to be something that that we experience. So the question is, have you experienced the the grace of God? Have you experienced the peace of God? These Judaizers have not. They are foreign to them. Why? Because they have laid hold to another Gospel. To a different Gospel. As teachers, yeah, they can teach you about grace. And they can teach you about peace but they themselves are not well acquainted with them at all because they are teaching that you can earn grace and peace by what you do. And nothing the sinner does can ever earn grace or peace, can it, brothers and sisters? There has only ever been one who has been able to to earn grace and peace for us. Right? There has only ever been one who has been able to to pay what is owed so that we could receive the grace and the peace of God. There's only one who has ever been worthy. One who has been chosen. One who has been equipped. One who is perfect in every way. One who was obedient unto death. One who was raised for our justification. One alone who is to be believed and trusted in. One and one reason alone that you and I now share in the grace and the peace of God. And that is because of Christ. It's because of Christ. And this is what Paul reminds them then of in verse 4 as he presents to them the true Gospel. Look with me there at verse 4, please. Who gave Himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. With this, we're going to come to our third and our final point this morning which is the reminder of what the Gospel is. The reminder of what the Gospel is. Now, there are three things that I want us to take note of as we look at at the Gospel here. The first thing I want us to notice is the content of the Gospel. What is the content? Paul says He gave Himself for our sins. So what is the Gospel? It's a message about Christ. It is speaking about Him. It says that salvation rests on Him and what He did on our behalf. And yet, brothers and sisters, isn't that a message that's so hard, so difficult for so many to grasp? And yet, how many like the Judaizers continue to, to add right, to that Gospel that speaks of Christ? And, it, and they add and they say, well, there's still something left for us to do. Right, the Gospel, which seems like a simple message is so hard to grasp. As people say, come on. Really, is, is that all that it is? Just believe and trust in the One who has died for me? Surely there's got to be something God wants me to do. Surely, as the sinner, I must do something to atone for my own sin. Perhaps i just got to be a better person. i got to cut out sin in my life. I need to show up to church regularly. I need to, to pray three times a day. But I want us to see in saying those t- sorts of things, what they do is they is they really question. Right? They question Jesus' work. Right? They, they question the sufficiency of the sacrifice. They question the worthiness and the value of the substitute. Right? The message seems so unbelievable to so many because it seems too simple, too easy. And as sinners by nature, we like applause, don't we? We like to feel good about ourselves. And so, sinners today want something to do with their own salvation. right? They want to be applauded and and petted on the back for it. They want to feel good about what they have done. But brothers and sisters, this is why the Gospel is a stumbling block and folly to so many. Because it calls us to do what? It calls us to look away from ourselves. Something that we are not accustomed to doing. Right? To look away from ourselves. To not place any trust in ourselves and our own ability to get ourselves out of trouble. But simply look wholly upon Christ. Right? To, so- to look solely upon God. But the God who clothed Himself in our nature. Right? What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21? It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Right? People can't believe that someone would do such a thing. They think it's outlandish, it's foolishness. What does Paul say? That very rarely will one die for a good person, a righteous person. And so people say, why would a God become take on flesh and, and suffer and die for all of these people who, who hate him and were his enemies and, and are hostile towards him? But this is exactly what Paul says that Christ has done. While we were yet still sinners, God showed His love for us that He sent His Son and that He died for us. And what that is describing is what we call substitutionary atonement, isn't it? Right? Substitutionary atonement. Not that just that Jesus died, but that He died in the place of sinners. That He died in our place for our sins. That for our sake, he was made to be sin who knew no sin, but we need to understand for who did he do it for, for everyone who believes and right? isn't that interesting here in the text? Is't that interesting that Paul doesn't say that that he gave himself up for everybody, even the sin of the Judaizers, but he says he gave himself up for us, right for the sins of those who believed in Galatia and brothers and sisters, that is the same. Promise to us as well. For those of us who believe that He likewise gave Himself up for our sins as well. The second thing I want us to see that Paul describes here in this statement is the purpose for His death. right? The the purpose of the Gospel. He died for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. So we have to ask, what is the evil age? Let's identify the evil age. Well, it's the world since the fall. It's the world since the fall. Why is it evil? Well, because it's under the sway of the devil, isn't it? It's filled with sin and corruption. Evil and wickedness abound everywhere that you look. I mean, think about who we are even as we enter into the world. We come into the world children of disobedience, children of wrath, children of the devil. We come into this disordered world that is fallen to the curse. Right here, brothers and sisters, is the blasphemy of God we hear. Here in this world, in this age, we, there is so much sin going on, rebellion, disobedience, right, lying, cheating, stealing, all of the sort. That's why Paul can call it the evil age. But Paul also says that through the gospel, right, Christ now overthrows the devil for the believer. Right? He, he unseats the devil in our heart. He overthrows and destroys his kingdom. He conquers sin. He rips death from Satan's hands. And he transforms you and I, those who trust in Christ, out from the kingdom of, of darkness and bondage to a kingdom of light and of liberty. That's what the Gospel says, that that Christ came and died to deliver you and I out from our miserable and corrupt estate. He died so that He might bring us one day to His glorious presence as well. And so who does the work of redemption? Jesus. He does the work of redemption. How does He do it? By Himself. Giving of Himself. For who does He do it? For all who believe? for our sins, for what purpose to deliver us from the present evil age, not only now, but in the age to come. And ultimately, then, we need to ask, for what end? For what end is the Gospel? Here's that third aspect I want us to see. And that is that God ordained this to be so in order that He would be glorified as His will is accomplished in the world. Look once more at verse 4 and we'll look at 5 as well. Who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of God, of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. The Father is oftentimes pitted against the Son, isn't he? Right? The Father is oftentimes described as, a, as the angry one, as the wrathful one, and Jesus is the one who is, we are told, loves sinners. But I want us to see that that's not the case here, is it, at all. It's not the Son twisting the Father's arm, but rather we are told that this is the will of God the Father. And the Son then came to accomplish the Father's will. And so let us see, brothers and sisters, that it was God the Father who purposed our salvation. That it was Christ who came and purchased it. And it's the Holy Spirit who now places it inside of of your heart and mine. And this is why then all praise and all glory and all honor belongs to our triune God forever and ever because He has done it all. And so all praise belongs to Him. And so we need to see the point that Paul keeps driving home is that this is all of grace. Nothing can be earned. It is all of God. Contrary to what you're hearing from the Judaizers. Right, The Gospel is not about, brothers and sisters, what you can give God. It's about what God has given you. Right, The Gospel is not what you can do for Him, but what He has already done for you. And that becomes all the more abundantly clear when we scan these five verses and recognize that there is not one imperative in them. Right? As Paul declares the Gospel, there is not one command in these five verses. It's all indicative. That's because he's reminding the saints that the Gospel is not something you and I do. And that whenever we add our works to the Gospel, we make the Gospel no Gospel at all. The Gospel says, Jesus gave Himself and Jesus did it all. Brothers and sisters, we must come and take of Him. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful and thankful for the, the Gospel and its proclamation. We are so thankful, Lord, that You have revealed it uh, to uh, unworthy servants. Uh, we are thankful, Father, that You have removed the scales from our eyes and allowed us to uh, put down and to cast off our own unrighteousness, no longer looking to it as the source of righteousness, but rather uh, to forsake ourselves, to look away from ourselves, and to to cleave wholly to Christ, uh, we pray, Lord, that as the gospel is proclaimed today that that those who have not trusted in Christ would see that their works merit them nothing before God, and that Lord you would use the gospel. Uh, to transform their hearts this day. And that You would likewise use the Gospel as a reminder to us all that the Gospel is all of grace. And may we never forget that. And we ask all these things in Christ's name we pray. Amen.